Hey guys, welcome to Relatable. Happy Monday. For those of you who have missed Theology Monday, today we are going to do that. We are going to talk about a most misused verse. If you are new to the podcast, you might not know that this is a series that I do. I do it every few weeks or so. We have talked about Philippians 4.13. I think that we have talked about Jeremiah 29.11. If we haven't talked about that yet, we will. We've talked about a variety of passages that are used a lot in the Christian community or even in the pseudo-Christian community online, whatever in a way that is decontextualized and therefore is not accurate and therefore is not actually as encouraging as the decontextualizer would like the verse to be. And we always talk about why the actual meaning of a verse is so much better than our perceived and comfortable meaning of a verse that we use to build ourselves up. When verses are used to glorify God rather than to just make ourselves feel better about ourselves or our efforts or whatever, uh, the result is always much better, obviously, because God is more glorified, but it's also better for us. Before we get into this particular verse that we're talking about today, well, I'll tell you, it's Psalm 46.5, God is within her, she will not fall. I know you as a woman have heard about this before and have seen this shared, but before we get into this, I want to tell you guys about Hydrant. I've talked about Hydrant before. They're an awesome, awesome company. Top performers in business and in sports often attribute their success to their morning routine, whether it's waking up early, they set their goals for the day, they journal, they pray, whatever it is. But not everyone has the time to do it all. But if there's one thing that you can do in your morning routine to make sure that you are off to the right start for your day, it is making sure that you are hydrated. So with Hydrant, you can jumpstart your mornings. Did you know? Did you know that 75% of us are walking around every day in life chronically dehydrated? That has been true of me in the past. We are suffering needlessly from frequent headaches, from energy slumps, from poor focus, and it doesn't have to be this way. If you want to kick the coffee habit, that's something that I want to do. But if you are worried about your energy levels, you have to make sure that you are hydrated. So Hydrant creates flavored electrolyte packets that you mix directly into your water, To make hydrating your body easy and delicious, each rapid hydration mix has the four essential electrolytes your body needs to help you hydrate quickly and to stay hydrated all day. It is backed by research. The formula was developed by Oxford scientists to provide perfectly balanced, efficient hydration. There are no synthetic colors or artificial sweeteners or anything like that. Of course, it's vegan, so nothing to worry about there. It starts at just a buck a packet for a 30-day supply. You can save even more with a monthly subscription. And for 25% off, 25% off your first order, go to drinkhydrant.com, enter promo code Allie, that's A-L-L-I-E at checkout, that is drinkhydrant.com, and enter promo code Allie for 25% off your first order again. Just in case you missed it, it is drinkhydrant.com, and enter promo code Allie. Okay, let's talk about Psalm 46.5. This verse that you have seen all across Pinterest, you've seen it in, you know, influence Instagram bios, you've seen it shared on Instagram, something that is very motivating and very encouraging for a lot of women, but unfortunately is very often misused. The great thing is it is a comforting and encouraging verse, but not for the reasons that a lot of people that use it think. And then if we have time after this explanation, I'm going to answer some of the questions that you guys sent me via Instagram. So 
Here's the NIV version that you have seen a million times. God is within her. She will not fall. Some versions say she will not fail. ESV is the version that I use, and it is God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. Maybe you've seen that version shared or posted on Instagram as well. Like I said, women love this verse. We see a female pronoun and we're like, yes, finally, this verse is about me. This Bible verse speaks into my life. It's talking about me Pers- uh, personally, it's specifically intended for me and my situation. I can't wait to take it out of context and to post it on my profile to make sure that people know that I am clinging to the word of God and sell a product on Etsy that has this decontextualized verse on it. Uh, I see this verse typically uh, used across social media in a way that is supposed to make the woman who is posting it or maybe the women who are reading it feel fierce and strong and steadfast and determined because God is within them. And I get the feeling that sometimes, maybe most of the time, when this verse is used in that way, it's being used in a way that is much less about pointing to the strength and the power and the goodness and the awesomeness of God and more about pointing to the strength and the awesomeness of the woman who is posting it. And as we always say on this podcast, if your interpretation of any verse or of scripture as a whole is centered on you, if you read scripture as if you are playing the starring role, if you study the Bible and constantly look to insert yourself into each passage or turn every single passage into a metaphor for your life or see yourself in every Bible character, you are reading the Bible incorrectly and your theology because of that will suffer. And theology is not some like esoteric thing that only professors need to think about. It is incredibly practical. Uh, It affects how you live, how I live our daily lives, how we deal with pain and sorrow and tribulation and persecution and loss. And I want to back up before we get into this specific verse and what it really means. I want to back up and make sure that uh, I explain where I'm coming from in this and why it's so important to have the mentality that I'm about to explain before we actually read scripture and when we try to understand what scripture actually means. Uh, So if you perceive yourself to be the starring role in the biblical narrative, that puts God in the supporting role. That makes God the guy who does stuff for you that God is your genie. He is your wizard. That makes you the one who is being served by God. Uh, You the one who is being worshiped by God, Uh, which then gives you the feeling that you are entitled to the things that you think you need from God. And when God doesn't give you those things, when you go through a tragedy or disappointment or whatever it is, your entire faith crumbles. For example, if you read the story of David and Goliath and you make yourself the David in the story and Goliath, all your problems, and God, the one who is promising to make sure you take down your proverbial giants, you are going to be really disappointed when the problems that you are facing don't go away how or when you expect them to. Uh, In this disappointment, sadly, so often we see this over and over again. It leads to faithlessness. At the very least, it leads to a wishy-washy kind of faith that is based on people's feelings rather than based on the steadfast joy that Christ gives. This is why theology matters. Uh, But if you read the story, if you read the story of David and Goliath, and instead of looking for yourself, 
you look for the strength and the power and the glory of God, then you see this passage rightly. Then you really have something to cling to. Then you really have an anchor. Then we are moved to worship of the God of the universe. And we can say, as Jeremiah did in Jeremiah 32, 17, nothing is too hard for you. Uh, We can take our eyes off of our feeble selves and onto God who proves that he doesn't need our human strength to do what he wants to get done. Uh, We can see his faithfulness, his power, how he sometimes makes sure that all odds are stacked against him or seemingly stacked against his people uh, before blowing people's minds. Uh, And we can read this story and we can say, wow, God, you are so good. Instead of, wow, God, when are you going to do that for me? When are you going to give me my pebbles and my sling so I can slay my giants? Why haven't you done that for me yet? Instead of being entitled, we can be grateful for the character of God that we see in this passage. And we can move deeper into this passage and we can realize something even more glorious. That David in the passage of David and Goliath is not us. He is a picture of Jesus. Sinclair Ferguson says this in his book, Preaching the Gospel from the New Testament, um, or I think it's actually from the Old Testament. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. So let me repeat that. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Now that is good news. That is way better news than us being David. Uh, Compare that to this quote, a quote that I found by some pastor that apparently people know on Pinterest, but I never heard of. Uh, The quote, his quote says this, sometimes God will put a Goliath in your life for you to find the David within you. The reality is, is that you and I are not David. We're not David. David is David. And in another sense is Jesus in a much deeper and a better sense. Uh, this story isn't about our strength. It's about God's strength. It's not about our ability to save ourselves, but God's salvation of his people through Christ who defeated the giant of sin and death by dying on the cross and rising again three days later. What better news is that? Uh, how much more satisfying is that? That that the truth, uh, how much better is, is the truth Uh, that Jesus is the true and better David than the idea that we have to pick up our stones and fight our own battles. Uh, The me-centered interpretation of this passage, any passage, will lead to disappointment when we realize God has not promised to give us the things that we want. Uh, But the Christ-centered interpretation of this passage and any passage uh, will buoy us through the most tumultuous storms. Uh, Because while our strength wavers, his never does. While our successes come and go, his success uh, in saving us endures forever. It is fixed. It is eternal. It is sure. It is worth clinging to. We should always remember and rejoice that God is a much better God than we are, that we are really bad gods. Uh, As we continually say on this podcast, our theology should be centered on God's glory, not our deservedness. If we are constantly recentering every passage on how it glorifies God rather than ourselves, we are in really good territory theologically, and a lot of our questions can be answered just by redirecting the glory to its rightful owner, which is the God of the universe. 
Now, does that mean that scripture does not apply to us? Of course, that doesn't mean that. Of course, scripture gloriously and graciously applies to us. Graciously, we are affected by God's glory because graciously, we have been included in God's glorious plan of redemption through Christ. Graciously, in Christ, we have become God's children, his heirs, his ambassadors, his cheerful fellow workers, which means that his character uh, affects how we live our lives, our ability to endure our joy, his character and his will affect all of these things in a very tangible way. So when we read scripture, of course we ask, what does this mean for my life? Uh, in the sense that how can this glorious truth of God that I read in this particular passage in whatever passage align my thoughts, my words, and my life better to who he is and how he has called his people to live. And yes, we find comfort, we find strength, we find conviction. These are wonderful and merciful byproducts of God's glory being the center of both the Bible and our lives. And this is one reason why, again, as we've said so many times, the prosperity gospel fails. The prosperity gospel is about your glory and not God's. Uh, but God does not serve us. He is not our genie. He is not playing the supporting role in the biblical narrative or the narrative of our lives or the narrative of eternity. He is the director. He is the producer. He is the casting director. He is the star. He never moves from center stage. Now, what does all of that mean for this particular passage? Psalm 46, 5, God is within her. She will not fall. So it means, first of all, that instead of looking uh, primarily for what this verse says about me, what it says about us and how this verse makes me feel, we ask the question, what does this say about God? And in order to know that, we always need context, always. Another thing that we say on this show a lot is that you cannot know God intimately without knowing God accurately. And in an effort towards accuracy, we have to know context. Uh, this psalm is a psalm of the sons of Korah. You can read that right in your Bible. And here are verses one through seven. It so helps just to read surrounding verses for us to remember or for us to know what a verse actually means. And the question we ask is not, what does this verse mean to me? But what does it actually mean? And in order to know that, we dive deeper into scripture, not deeper into our feelings. So here are verses one through seven of this chapter. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Now, I just have to pause for a second because I posted on Instagram the other day that I always have Bible songs stuck in my head that I play. We play every night. Um, this little CD that came with this cute storybook Bible that we have. And one of the songs is God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And then it just repeats that a million times. I know I'm an amazing singer. I should probably, that should probably be what I do. I should probably go into recording kids' albums. Just kidding. I'll spare you. But that's the first thing that came into my head. And I just had to sing that for you. And all of the moms out there who listen to the same CD every single day, you know exactly what I'm talking about. That's why this podcast is called Relatable. Okay, let me start over. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, there is a river 
whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. Or as the NIV says, God is within her. She will not fall. Uh, God will help her when the morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Now we could spend hours upon hours and frankly, we could listen to people much smarter than all of us talk about this passage and how magnificent it is, how comforting it is, all of the different historical um, uh, intricacies that weave into this particular passage. But we don't even have to do that just to get a better understanding of this passage and of this particular verse than the one that we are given from Pinterest. So reading just these verses that surround that verse that we see shared so often, we see that it's not talking about us as individuals. Like it's not talking about uh, a particular woman. It's not talking about me, Ali Stuckey. It is talking about the church. It's talking about God's people. And that is such a more comforting reality especially right now when uh, an epidemic has broken loose and when things seem so unsure, when it seems like the economy is doing a downturn, we don't know what's going to happen in the election. This verse that says the nations rage, the kingdoms totter, but God, he utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So when we take a step back and we stop thinking, what does this particular verse mean to me and my feeling and my life and my multi-level marketing business? and my side hustle and my Instagram following and my feelings for today and my entrepreneurial endeavor. And we realize that this means that the God of the universe, the Alpha, the Omega, the great I am has promised to be with his people that he has called to himself, that he has redeemed and reconciled through Christ, that no matter what happens, that no matter what comes, that no matter what persecution comes our way, that he is going to be with us, that he is going to strengthen us, that he is sovereign, that nothing pushes him off his throne, that nothing surprises him that his will is going to be accomplished no matter what. What an amazing comfort that is to know that that is the God that we serve, that that is the God that deserves all the glory and all the worship and all the praise. What I am afraid of is that a lot of times, even though I'm sure there are a lot of people that accurately use the particular verse that we're talking about for righteous comfort, for justified comfort, because there is comfort in this verse. What I'm afraid of is that it is really a very superficial and a very self-centered application of the verse that doesn't offer you the same satisfaction and the same comfort and the same encouragement that this verse is supposed to give you by saying that the God that we worship is so big and so steadfast and so amazing and so outside of all of uh, the goods and the bads that are in our life where he's transcendent over those things. He is sovereign and supreme over those things and he deserves all of our worship and our trust and our faith. That is much better news than this verse, meaning God is with her, that says God is within her, she will not fall, meaning that you are going to uh, accomplish something at work. That's not what this verse means. This verse means something so much better than that. And yes, we do take comfort from it. Of course we do. We can read this at night and we can post this on our Instagram. We can post it on, on Pinterest and we can take true comfort for it as long as we remember what it actually means. That he is talking about his church. He is talking about his people. And yes, if you're a Christian, that does mean you individually as well. But let's remember 
the bigness of God, the bigness of his plan, how all encompassing his plan of redemption is. And really, as always, how much better, how much better it is when we read his word in the context of the rest of his word, rather than extricating it and applying uh, some superficial meaning, some selfish meaning onto it to make it mean something that it doesn't actually mean. So let's read verses four and five again. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the most high. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will keep her when morning dawns. God will not fail his people. He will not fail his, uh, he will not fail his followers. He will not fail his children. He will not fail his heirs. He will not fail his ambassadors. And when everything is going on, we understand that God is the God of justice, that he will pay back evil and that we don't have to worry. We don't have to worry about everything that's going on. We don't have to be anxious about it. We don't have to fear. We don't have to believe that everything in life is writing on the 2020 election. It's important. And I think that we have civic duties, but we don't have to pretend like who is sitting in the White House is going to determine the future. God determines the future. Like we don't have to worry about coronavirus ending the world. We already know what the end of the world is going to look like. The Bible tells us and God is going to bring it about in the way that he tells us that he is going to in his word. Same thing with climate change. We don't have to worry. We can be good stewards of the earth and we should be, but we don't have to worry about climate change uh, taking down the entire universe. That is not what the Bible says is going to precipitate the quote end of the world. Uh, what we know for sure is that God is going to one day rule in perfect peace, that a Satan is going to be bound, destroyed forever, and that we won't have any sorrow. We won't have any anxiety. We won't have any fear. We won't have any cancer. We won't have any sickness. We won't have any coronavirus. We won't have any political debates. We won't have any partisanship. We won't have anything to worry about because the God that is spoken about in this chapter is going to follow through on his plan to have ultimate and eternal victory. And that is why we rejoice. That is the reason for the comfort coming from this verse. It is not superficial. It is not self-centered. It is about God and his glory. And we are graciously beneficiaries of that glory. That's what this passage is about. And as always, that is so much better than any kind of pithy Pinterest verse that is decontextualized and used for some narcissistic reason. Again, I don't want to say that everyone who uses this verse uses it in a narcissistic way. It's still a verse in the Bible. It's still biblical, but we have to make sure that we are applying it to the glory of God and not to the glory of ourselves. It's so much better that way. Okay, we've got a few more minutes and I do want to answer some of the questions that you guys sent me on Instagram. Let me just say, so I guess, well, maybe it's pointless to even say this on Instagram because, well, you'll see why it's pointless. So I get a lot of questions about to ask me to talk about things I've talked about before, which is total, you know, that's fine because maybe you just started listening last week. And so you don't realize that I talked about something a few months ago. No problem. You know, people suggesting things that I've talked about in the past. I usually just direct them to the episode in which I talked about that. Now it is like, if I just talked about something two days ago and I get a question on Instagram saying, why don't you ever talk about this? It can be like a little bit irking, but I try to, you know, realize 
that obviously not everyone keeps up with this every single day and there are people behind it. That's totally fine. But sometimes the questions are accusatory, like you never talked about this or you've never talked about this. Well, actually we have, and you can go back and you can Google or you can search whatever app that you listen to this podcast in. And sometimes you can find those. For example, I had two episodes on vaccines where I talked to two different sides of that. We are going to dive into that subject again, by the way, because there's a lot to talk about there. So uh, the accusations of people who claim that I never talk about something who haven't actually done their research, that can be kind of frustrating. It's also obvious that some of the people that send me questions just don't listen to my podcast at all because it's they suggest something that I've talked about like so many times or that I talk about in every episode. So I guess this doesn't apply. This doesn't apply. I would encourage people who do not listen to the podcast to not send me questions that are specifically for the podcast. But you're listening to the podcast, so it doesn't matter. Any way. Someone asked me, for example, about birth control. Just talked about that on Monday. I've talked about vaccines. Well, I haven't talked about this particular subject, so I will give you a pass on that. Uh, someone asked, what is prayer for? I actually talked about that a little bit on uh, Wednesday if you are someone who believes in the absolute sovereignty of God and that nothing escapes his sovereign will, obviously people disobey his moral will, but nothing escapes his sovereign will. The Bible says not even a sparrow falls from the sky apart from the will of the Father. Nothing is outside of God's sovereign will. Difficult for us to understand, but very obvious throughout scripture. You can listen to my podcast episode titled Predestination. One of the questions that we have when it comes to the sovereignty of God is why do we even pray if God has already preordained every Thing. Um, there is this thing called concurrence in theology where two different things are happening at the same time that seem contradictory. And yet, according to the Bible, it is so. And one of those things is the absolute sovereignty of God and man's responsibility. So, for example, in the story of Moses and Pharaoh, where God says, I'm going to harden Hero uh, Pharaoh's heart and I am going to basically cause him to not let my people go. He still holds Pharaoh responsible. He still punishes Pharaoh. And in the same way, like we can read in Romans 9, that this it, concurrence that God through Paul is trying, or Paul, the apostle Paul is trying to, uh, explain uh, this uh, this concurrence, this idea of God's sovereignty and man's role and his responsibility and all of this. And basically, Paul just answers, look, God is sovereign. Who is the clay to say to the potter? Why did you make me this way? One of the questions that we deal with in talking about this this theological topic of concurrence, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility is, is prayer. Uh, the reason that we pray, if we believe that God is fully sovereign and that nothing happens outside of his will, no matter what, which is true, the reason why we pray is because God has also preordained prayer. Uh, he has preordained prayer as the vessel by which, as the uh, as the means by which his will is often accomplished. And so that is why we pray. God has commanded us to pray and pray. Ha prayer has power. The Bible says the prayer of a righteous person has great power. So it actually does something. Now, can we fully explain how that works because we know that God is not limited by our time. So he's not waiting there. He's not like, Ooh, are they going to pray? I don't know if I'm going to do my will or not. God is completely in control. He's even completely in control of our prayers. And that is even a uh, part of his sovereign will. So prayer is the preordained uh, means by which we 
request God to do things and he will always act in accordance to his will. Uh, next question, how to discern music okay to listen to and sing at church, also secular music. So how to discern music okay to listen to and sing at church. It's kind of like what we talked about today. Is this song about me or about God? Is it about God's glory and us being beneficiaries of God's character? Of course, that's fine. There's going to be songs that include us. Like Amazing Grace is about God's grace, but it talks about us that saved a wretch like me. So there's going to be applications to us, and I think that's totally fine. But we have to look at who this song is actually about. And even more importantly, is it an accurate rendering according to the Bible of who God is? For example, does the Bible say that God is reckless? The Bible doesn't say that God is reckless. Now, sometimes I think that maybe we can think too hard about, about these things, but we do need to make sure that the songs that we are singing are aligned with the Bible, not aligned with our own feelings, not aligned with some fantastical view of who we think the genie in the sky is, but who the Bible says that he is. We have ample resources in scripture to create magnificent and wonderful and God glorifying songs. As far as secular music goes, uh, I mean, the Bible says whatever is lovely, whatever is pure. I don't think that all music, uh, all secu so-called secular music is uh, off the table. But I think that we know that we shouldn't be listening to things that are corrupted and that we uh, that we know represent or glorify sin in any way. And I'm totally guilty of that. Totally guilty of that, by the way. But for the Christian, that is the standard. Like we shouldn't be listening to things that we know glorify sin or normalize sin, make it seem less important than it actually is. Um, one thing every college student should experience. Interesting. So I definitely didn't have like the perfect college experience. One thing I did is I studied abroad and I went to Scotland. Probably wouldn't encourage you to study abroad right now, especially if you're looking at some kind of like, I don't know, Asia trip, Iran study abroad program. If you got one of those at your college, probably wouldn't do that right this second, maybe in the future, not right now. Um, for obvious reasons, I really liked our study abroad program to Scotland. I learned a lot about the world, learned a lot about independence, learned a lot about mass transit, things like that, you know, growing up in the suburbs that I didn't really have experience. And we also had internships in this particular program. And I think that helped a lot with just growth and maturing, learning, learning how to work under um, a boss in actual like, you know, like a corporate type setting, not just at a restaurant or something like that. Uh, and I think it helped. I, I think it really grew me up in a lot of ways. And it was just an amazing experience to see different parts of the world. I mean, Europe really is in so many ways, an amazing place with amazing history. Went to Barcelona, went to Rome, saw Pompeii, went to Paris. Uh, I never went to Ireland, which was really odd and, and sad that I never ended up doing that, but saw a variety of places in Scotland and London. And I just went to uh, a lot of amazing places. And if you can afford it, if you can do that. If you have the opportunity to do that, great. If you don't, like college is going to be, you know, just as just as well that you that you didn't go. It's perfectly fine. I would, if you can get a job, I would say find Christian friends, stick with those Christian friends. My encouragement to you would be to not get into the drinking and the party crowd that you think is worth it. It's never worth it. Never worth it. Um, let's see. Any more questions? Would you adopt children? Yes, we would. Uh, any 
more. We're about out of time. Let's see. Gen- oh, I did want to answer this one. Uh, gender gap. Is there really one? So I've talked about this many times on the podcast before, too. So this person might not listen to the podcast. And if so, you won't hear your question answered, which is sad. But there is a uncontrolled gender wage gap. So there's a controlled gender wage gap and an uncontrolled gender wage gap is what it's called. So a controlled gender wage gap means that if you're looking at what a woman makes versus what a man makes, a controlled gender gap looks at all of the factors. So you're looking at if you're looking at two people, a man and a woman, those are the only two genders, by the way. Um, you are looking at education. You're looking at job title. You're looking at experience. You're looking at number of hours worked. If all factors are the same between a man and a woman, there is no gender wage gap. No gender wage gap whatsoever. They make a dollar to a dollar. So the controlled gender wage gap, when you are looking at all different factors, doesn't exist. Now, the uncontrolled gender wage gap, so that doesn't look at any factors whatsoever. You're just looking at one random man and one random woman who happened to work. They work at two different places. They got different education. They got different experience. They got different job titles, the number of hours that they work, the number of, you know, the overtime shifts that they have, completely different, doesn't factor for any of those things. Just the average man and the average woman makes, the woman makes 79 cents to every dollar that a man makes. But those the, the government has no role in this. This isn't sexism. These are the choices in many cases uh, that women are making. They don't work as uh, many overtime shifts. They don't work as long of hours. They don't usually have a major that leads to the kind of job that makes more money. So there aren't as many women who are engineering or mathematics or even business majors. There are Plenty, but there aren't as many. Most of the time, women major in social studies or they major in sociology, I mean, or they major in English or they major in history, those kind of language arts, communications, for example. And those don't always, at least not as often, they don't uh, lead to high paying job or, jobs or as high as jobs in engineering and things like that. That's a choice. That's not because uh, the government is sexist. That's not because of the patriarchy. What the people who propagate this gender wage gap myth want you to think is that the patriarchy is oppressing these women, that they're not choosing these jobs, has nothing to do with female choices whatsoever, has nothing to do with female propensities that a woman would never choose. They should never choose to stay home with her kids. She would never choose to be a caretaker. She would never choose a job that pays less. She would never choose to work fewer hours. She would never choose to be an English major that happens to only lead to a job that makes, you know, not very much every year. She would never choose that. People are forcing that on her. These are male standards that are being forced on her. Well, go back and you should listen to my episode, Why Feminism Will Fail You. And you can listen to why one of the reasons why that's a myth. But the fact of the matter is men and women are different. There's been so much money, so many efforts pumped into getting more women in STEM, more women in science. And I, from what I've read, the gap hasn't really been changed at all. The gender gap hasn't really been changed at all because of those efforts. There are plenty of female scientists, awesome, female doctors, female engineers, wonderful. But the funny thing is, the funny thing is, if you look at a list of jobs, like so the Bureau of Labor of Statistics, uh, you can, the, 
I don't, I didn't say that right, but you know what I'm talking about. You can look at a variety of jobs. So you can look at refrigerator repair, repair people. You can look at fishermen or fisher people. You can look at all of these hands-on blue collar jobs and you see that they are taken up uh, 99% of these blue collar hands-on jobs are taken on by men. Whereas if you look at roles that have to do with communication, have to do with people, have to do with networking, the vast majority of these jobs that have to do with the more artistic and the more open and the more flowing and the more interconnected part of the brain are taken up by women. But feminists don't talk about the gender gap in plumbing. Like they don't talk about the gender gap in the electrician industry. They only talk about the gender gap in things like STEM, uh, the gender gap in, uh, you know, CEOs or lawyers or things like that. But they say that has to do with sexism, but they would never say that the gender gap in the plumbing industry has to do with sexism. So which is it? The fact of the matter is most of the time it has to do with female choices, but feminists don't want to believe that men and women are inherently different. And that's why feminism is stupid. Okay, that's all I have time for today. And I will see you back here on Wednesday.